Hello, David Oakes here with All Things Arboreal in this arts slash nature podcast that is Trees A Crowd. As you're hopefully aware, this is our 32nd episode of this season after all. This year, with some friends, I'm exploring trees, many of which are closely related. As such, today's episode will probably make more sense if you listen to last week's episode on the field maple first. But if you've already done that, then sit back, relax, and enjoy. Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. In 1664, the diarist John Evelyn wrote a book. It was published by the Royal Society and called Silver from the Latin for Forests. It provided practical advice and informed a discussion on the value of trees and woodland. His words inspired generations of landowners to reconsider the values of silviculture. Evelyn's ambitions were grand, wanting to write a book not simply for the ordinary rustics, mere foresters or woodmen, but for the benefit and diversion of gentlemen and persons of quality. The book was an homage to trees, to woodlands and to all those who walked amongst them. He loved all trees, but with one exception. The second of our two native-ish maple trees. Tree 45. The sycamore, Acer pseudoplatanus. Evelyn said, The sycamore is much more in reputation for its shade than it deserves. For the honeydew leaves which fall early, like those of the ash, turn to mucilage and noxious insects, and putrefy with the first moisture of the season, so as they contaminate and mar our walks, and are therefore, by my consent, to be banished from all curious gardens and avenues. Charming. Not a tree for the 17th century sylvologist, it seems. But perhaps not all that much has changed, for the sycamore's behaviour upsets many a modern naturalist too to this day. The sycamore spreads freely and germinates enthusiastically. Its roots, like those of all maples, grows aggressively and form dense, fibrous layers that exclude our native trees. Also, the pigments in its rotting leaves decay, releasing toxins, much like their relatives in the States that I mentioned last week. And as such, modern naturalists, including Richard Nairn, who I interviewed earlier this season, go to great lengths to strip sycamores from areas of ancient woodland. Modern motoring city dwellers may well be in agreement with Evelyn and Nairn too, for the sycamore is extremely resistant to pollution, and as such, planted often within urban sprawls for that much-needed green respite. But park beneath a sycamore at your peril, for sycamore aphids chew on the veins of the leaves and will excrete the stickiest of mucilage, thanks to Evelyn for that word, onto your car windscreens. It is a nightmare to shift. But these aphids love the leaves of the sycamore. And our larger predatory insects love the aphids, and the birds love the insects that prey upon the aphids. So our sycamore, in this sense at least, although poor in the range of diversity of insect life it supports, does splendidly at accommodating the species that it can. And the truth is, the tree grows well here, really, really well. For, as well as being resistant to pollution... It can also withstand strong winds, cold summers, salt air, often being planted as a coastal windbreak. And it can grow in pretty much any soil condition, so long as it's not extremely dry or within a waterlogged swamp. It is one of nature's survivors. 
Indeed, it is now so prevalent in our country that you could be easily forgiven for presuming that it was a native species. But it is not. The sycamore is native to parts of Europe, but its presence on the British Isles came much later. But when exactly? Some historians believe the Romans brought it over to support vines as they used our native and related field maple, or lesser maple, as my favourite Elizabethan herbalist John Gerard called it. The first English written reference to the sycamore was in fact by Gerard, who called it the Great Maple, and by another Elizabethan botanist, Henry Light, who translated a famous Dutch herbal, dedicated it to Queen Elizabeth I, and presented it in person to her, no doubt with a sycophantic flourish and a very feathery hat. Now, Light's only other published work was one in which he espoused the quite spectacular belief that the British were descendants of the mighty Trojans but I'll get back to Light in a bit, for he may have more to answer for. Anyway, in 1597, Gerard wrote, The great maple is a stranger in England, only it groweth in the walks and places of pleasure of noblemen. And this remains the case. Our oldest and grandest specimens of sycamore are found in the grounds of stately homes, especially in Scotland and the north of England, which has led some to hypothesise that it could have been the Scots, rather than the Romans, who imported the tree. And this theory holds a modicum of potential truth. For the sparsity of written references to these trees, nothing, and then not much until the Elizabethans, suggests that the sycamore were still rarely seen trees by the Elizabethans, and even then, only to the pleasure-seeking nobility. These are trees that can live for hundreds of years and grow to around 35 metres in height. They self-seed readily and can quickly sprout new growth from their fallen specimens. So if the Romans brought them over giving them hundreds of years to establish themselves in the public consciousness, why had no one written about them before? So personally, I prefer yet another theory. I believe that the Crusaders brought them back, the Holy Grail in one saddlebag and a sycamore sapling in the other, as they rode back through the trees' native lands of Western Asia and Central Europe. But David, I hear you ask, in previous episodes you have gone to great lengths to explain the value of using archaeological pollen records to determine when a tree arrived here. Surely your paleontological pals can help you here. Well, unfortunately not. The probably non-native sycamore's pollen record cannot be distinguished from the almost certainly native field maple pollen record. Their pollen is just too similar. And as such, paleontological studies cannot help us say exactly when the sycamore arrived. But it is safe-ish to say that it arrived prior to my cut-off point of 1492, and as such is an archaeophyte and a now naturalised species on the British Isles. But is that a bad thing? In many areas where native woodland communities are valued, the invasive nature of sycamore is a problem, and a great deal of effort is committed to reducing its impact. But modern-day sylvologist Gabriel Hemery begs to differ, at least under certain circumstances. Writing both in his New Silver, a book celebrating and expanding upon the work of his 17th-century predecessor, John Evelyn, and beyond, Hemery suggests that there is much about the sycamore to celebrate. But bear with me for a quick second whilst I go on a tiny tangent. As you may well be aware, we are likely to lose many, many acres of our native ash woodland to ash dieback. More on that in a later episode. But in short, it is a fungal disease that is racing through our population of ash trees like the Dutch elm disease ravaged our native elms. If all our ash is lost, 
the biodiversity and environmental traits associated with the ash could halve. It is fair to say that this would not be a good thing. But Hemery and his colleagues argue that Sycamore can be one of a range of species best placed to mitigate biodiversity loss in the face of ash dieback. This will be particularly beneficial in areas such as the northern Norfolk Broads and other wetter woodlands that originally had ash growing alongside the likes of alder, or indeed also where ash grew in some beech and field maple rich woodlands. You see, both our ash and sycamore are opportunists, germinating quickly and producing large numbers of wind-dispersed seeds capable of invading many appropriate woodland gaps. Indeed, should you be that way inclined, it could be rather fun to bet on which species might exploit such an opportunity first. Perhaps that's what the European beaker people did in between beaker-making sessions. Anyway, the sycamore is of a similar size to the ash, lives for roughly the same number of years as the ash, grows in similar soil conditions as the ash does, flowers at and for the same amount of time as the ash, and has almost identically weighted wind-dispersed samaras. It seems like an easy switch. But Hemery is at length to point out No single tree replaces all that ash provides to biodiversity, but we are certainly armed with the knowledge of how best to support our habitats with a mix of native and naturalised species, and in some instances non-native trees. This way we can mitigate the damage caused to our woodlands and their related biodiversity by any tree-killing pathogens. So there you have it. We should not necessarily be sick of more, sick of more. Get it? (laughs) Right. The name... Sycamore is an interesting one. You can find sycamores in the Bible, as metaphors in the Old Testament and people climbing into them in the New. Benjamin Britten was inspired by their presence in the Bible and wrote a beautiful adaptation of I Saw Three Ships under the title The Sycamore Tree, which in his interpretation commences with a man climbing said tree to see said three ships. Shakespeare references sycamores. In Romeo and Juliet, Act 1, Scene 1, Romeo is said to be mooching around like a love-struck teenager in a sycamore grove. But the truth is, ignoring the possibility that Shakespeare may have simply loved the wordplay of sick amore, or love sick, these biblical and Shakespearean trees were not what we call a sycamore. The name sycamore comes from the Greek words for fig and mulberry, sycon and moron, respectively. This should make it pretty clear that the biblical and Shakespearean sycamores are likely a different species of tree altogether. They are probably, in fact, the mulberry-leaved fig tree, then commonly and quite accurately known as the sycamore, and even now still scientifically called ficus sycamoros. Its presence in the Bible and Romeo and Juliet highlights that we were not a stranger to this other species. You can even find it named as Sycamore in Gerard's Herbal. But it seems to be Gerard's Trojan-obsessed, monarch-flattering contemporary Henry Light that first falsely named our great maple as the Sycamore. Or at least that is in English in the written word. For Gertrude Clark Nuttall, in her magnificent Trees and How They Grow from 1913, says... Tradition always held that Zacchaeus climbed into the ficus sycamorus, the true sycamore, to see our Lord pass. But in the mystery plays of the Middle Ages, since the true tree did not grow in the West, the great maple with its heavy shade was substituted, and hence the Eastern name became attached to it. And that's basically how the sycamore got its name. We just needed a replacement. 
For although sycamore's leaves are large, with serrated margins, and are palmately lobed, they only very loosely resemble the leaves of a mulberry tree, and are nothing like a fig, or the sycamore namesake, the mulberry-leaved fig tree. So, how best to spot our sycamore? On younger trees, the leaf stalks are often seen to be bright red, due to more of those wonderful maple pigments that I explored last week. The flowers form in small, greeny-yellow racemes. They look like a dripping floral stalactite, the inverse of the related horse chestnut whose racemes grow upwards, more like a firework crossed with a pyramid. In a single sycamore raceme, you can find male, female and hermaphrodite flowers. And look closely at the ovaries in the female flowers, and you will see the tiny wings of what will become the tree's samaras. And as discussed last week, the Samaras of our sycamore are those wonderful helicopters that any self-respecting junior naturalist has spent hours of their young lives throwing into the air. The bark of our sycamore is a charming pinky grey, which is smooth when young. But as the tree ages, it becomes thick and it becomes flaky, creating many crevices and nooks for insects to call home. And call it home they do. In early summer, you can lie in the tree's green shade and bathe in the melody of thousands of bees and other insects as they forage for nectar and the great maple's sugary sap. As with the field maple, the wood of the sycamore is extremely hardy and amplifies sound well. And to extend a metaphor perhaps a little too far, should such a thing be possible... It is as a hardy voice amplifier that the sycamore stands as totem, for a sycamore tree birthed the trade unions movement. In 1833, six agricultural labourers met beneath a 100-year-old sycamore in Tollpuddle, Dorset. Beneath the tree's welcome shade, no doubt dodging the aphid's sticky mucilage, they swore an oath to reject their poor living conditions, and to refuse wages not representative of the toil that they exerted. Now, Despite trade unions being in their early days and being legal, the six men were promptly arrested and sentenced to seven years' hard labour in Australia. Mass protests spread not only through Dorset, but across the country. Thousands marched through London to Parliament, petitions were signed, and protests demanded their freedom. Ultimately, the men were pardoned, but not before being christened the Tollpuddle Martyrs. Arguably, it is from this point in history, from beneath the shade of a sycamore tree, that the power of the trade union was born. And that particular sycamore, where it all began, still stands. It is thought to be around 320 years old now, and possesses a trunk diameter of almost one and a half metres. Thank you to Al, to Natalie, to my botanist great-aunt Roz, as always, and to Dr Gabriel Hemery for their input this week. Gabriel's New Silver is a fantastic and beautiful book, one that has informed much of this podcast. It has also just emerged in a new edition, so head to your independent bookshops post-haste. Thank you to you all for listening, and I will be back again next week with some trees of a new family, the limes of the Sapindaceae. Bye-bye. Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the bridge.